Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and take up further after the great division in this chapter that takes place at verse 21. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Let me read a few verses now. Let's read down till we find a period at the end of verse 26. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. If you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and the only Savior from sin, and that belief has changed your life to where it is followed up by good works, these verses are for you and they are about you and they tell you how God has saved you and justified you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is about to compare two systems of religion, Old Testament, New, Old Covenant, New Covenant, works of the law, faith in Jesus Christ. And we want to see that and lay hold of that. This is our salvation. From chapter 1 and verse 18 to chapter 3 and verse 20 was our condemnation. But now it's time to learn about our salvation. Paul's terminology will be such that it may be a little confusing to us at times, wondering if Paul is an Arminian. But Paul is no Arminian. He just has to do battle with Jewish legalists, and therefore his emphasis on faith without any good works to prove faith. James will take care of that, and Paul will take care of that in other places. But in this passage, he is fighting Jewish legalism, Those that thought the works of the law were either their entirety of their salvation or part of it. And Paul is taking them apart, as you saw plainly by the time he got to verse 20. He said, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It just shows us that we're sinners. In fact, chapter 7 will show us, it shows us, will tell us that it shows us to be exceeding sinful. Verse 21, very quickly, since we went over it last week. But now, this first word, the but, is a disjunctive telling us that verse 21 is different from verse 20. What's coming is different from what's been. The the hopelessness of verse 20, that by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. The hopelessness of verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty. Guilty. 21 is set in opposition to that by showing us the righteousness of God coming to us. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
The Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets, whether it be the books of Moses or the book of Isaiah, whether it be the book of Psalms or the book of Malachi, they told about a coming Redeemer that God would send to save His people. The Son of Righteousness would rise with healing in His wings. He would be called the Lord, our Righteousness. He would be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He would be called Emmanuel. He would be the seed of the woman. And he would deal a fatal death blow to the head of the serpent, the devil himself. The Old Testament witnessed it. It prophesied of it. It gave hints of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it wasn't manifestly clear until the New Testament arrived with John and Jesus and the apostles. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. A verse, or, or listen to its words if you already know them. Second Timothy 1.9 Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Amen. Salvation originated, as we just sang, Hail Sovereign Love, that first began the scheme to rescue fallen man in eternity. When God's purpose and grace was put upon us in Christ Jesus, that in time God would send His Son to bear our sins and to secure us everlasting righteousness. But notice what it says. It says that this was done before the world began. Verse 10, but is now. Here we have a but and now again. I believe I pointed this out to you last Sunday but is now made manifest. This plan of God to save His elect, though settled upon in eternity by the God of heaven, according to the good pleasure of His own will, was not made clear or plain. It was not revealed fully. In fact, it was hardly revealed at all until the Lord Jesus Christ came. Notice what it says in verse 10. But is now made manifest. By the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. These are two very important verses to us. First of all, they show us that salvation is based on God's plan in eternity, but not clearly seen until Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ made it plain during His earthly ministry that He came to save those the Father had given Him. Before the world began. Then, we notice that the gospel does not bring us life and immortality by these two verses. The gospel brings life and immortality to light. The gospel is the good news about Jesus securing life and immortality for us. But notice the words, but and now. We live in the best time in the history of the world. If you break the world into three divisions, like the Bible does in Romans chapter 5, there was the dispensation we call the patriarchal age, when God dealt with family heads, like Noah and like Abraham and others. Then there's the Old Testament, which began with Moses and ended with John the Baptist. And then there's the New Testament period of time. Romans 5 teaches us these three dispensations. We live in the best one. We live in the one after Jesus Christ where this eternal plan of salvation is made manifest by His appearing. And the gospel that He charged His apostles to preach 
that he had come to save men from their sins, and that by his resurrection from the dead, he had put away sins once for all. And those that believe on him show by the evidence of their faith that God has changed their hearts and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is upon them. This is what the Bible teaches us. We want to come back to Romans chapter 3. But now, the most important part of Romans so far is how do we get the righteousness of God so that we can stand before Him. We are all hastening toward an appointment with Almighty God. We are getting there faster than you think. You think by nature that you will live forever. Or at least a long time. Or it's far enough off. The lethargy of the Christians say within my heart, I have a long time to live. I corrupt Psalm 36 verse 1 for a reminder to you. We are hastening to meet God. The Bible says it's appointed men once to die, but after this, the judgment. When we meet God, we will want to be standing in His righteousness. Paul has hinted at that righteousness in verse 17 of the first chapter. For therein, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith. The only ones that care about it, the only ones that will believe it, are those that God has planted faith in their hearts. Those whose hearts He has opened, like the heart of Lydia. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul hinted at that in his short little summary of verses 16 and 17 in the first chapter. Then he used the the second half of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and the first half of chapter 3 to prove our condemnation that there is no combination or use of the law of Moses to help save or justify a man. That no man is going to stand in the righteousness of God by virtue of Moses' law. It's going to be, it's going to have to be provided by another. So that brings us to verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God. That righteousness hinted at in 117, the righteousness of God we need to stand before Him is now made manifest. But now is the righteousness of God without the law made manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament gave us hints of it from Genesis to Malachi, but it was made plain by Jesus Christ and the preaching of His apostles. We went over that last Lord's Day. I hope verse 21 and its glorious contrast with verse 20 is very precious to you. I hope that but is a very precious disjunctive. I hope that now is a very wonderful label of time That you are part of. We get to see everything through the spectacles of the New Testament and understand that we have had righteousness secured for us by Jesus Christ our Savior. They did not see that clearly in the past. They knew a, a Redeemer was coming because they knew the prophecies of it. But they did not see it clearly like we do. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Thank you, Lord. Verse 21 doesn't end with a period, nor does 22, 3, 4, 5. We have to work all the way down to verse 6 to where the end of this long sentence is a common practice of our beloved brother Paul as he ties thought after thought after thought together into long sentences. 
The word even, starting out verse 22, identifies an example, an intensive or emphatic particle, meaning exactly or precisely this is how it takes place. Verse 20 said, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So there's the introduction, and now a further definition. Even, exactly or precisely, the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all, them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let us keep that far in our thoughts at one time. I want to point out that in the, at least in the second half of verse 22, and for all of verse 23, the emphasis is on the word all. Paul's terminology right here in 22 and 23 is to point out that while he put Jews and Gentiles equal under condemnation and guilt down through verse 20, he puts them equal also as the recipients of salvation in verses 21 through 23. The emphasis... When he says, unto all and upon all, them that believe, there's no magic and there's no wisdom in the unto and the upon. The emphasis is all in the word all. He just uses the unto and upon to get you to focus on two alls because he's trying to make a very strong statement about the all. All them that believe. Every believer, whether Jew or Gentile, has the righteousness of God upon him and unto him. And that is how he is saved, is something God has planned from the beginning of the world, but only made manifest through the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God is upon believers. I have been so tempted today, and I'm not going to do it today until another week or two, is to go back and preach to you something I preached in 2003. And it's the faith of Abraham. Because Abraham is set forth by Paul and James as the preeminent classic example of justification by faith, it is important for us to go back and realize how Abraham was justified by faith and how he was not justified by faith but by works. It's important for us to realize what was this event in Abraham's life that God looked at and said, I declare this man righteous, even though Abraham had been a faithful follower of God for many years before Genesis 15, verse 6 took place. It is a very important point to us, but I'm going to wait, and we're going to use it as an excursus between chapters 3 and 4 by going and looking at Abraham's faith in detail so that when we move into chapter 4, we'll understand the things that are said there. It is so precious to help us grasp that faith is not a condition for regeneration. Faith is not a condition for election. Faith is not a condition for justification legally considered in the sight of God. Faith, our faith, is the evidence that we are legally righteous before God. And God declares anyone believing the testimony and record that He has given of His Son to be justified and righteous in His sight. That's why we have these words in verses 25 and 26, to declare His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. 
So when we come to verse 22 and it has the same words as verse 21, those words are the righteousness of God. This is key. You and I, the most important thing in our existence is that somehow, some way, we have God's righteousness upon us so that when we stand before Him, God will see us in the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, and all of our sins will be paid for. If this is not the case, there is truly no hope for us. And so we want to learn how that takes place. I know you can see in verse 24, it happens freely. By His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, but we're building our case as we move toward it. The adverb even identifies that this is an example and a fulfillment and the precise definition of what verse 21 was talking about. When it said that the righteousness of God was now made manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. When we take the first half of verse 22, even the righteousness of God, here it is, this is what is now made manifest, this is what the prophets told us about, but this is how it comes to us. As Paul starts his definition, our first clause to deal with is, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Let's separate it right there from the words, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, because there's two thoughts here in this passage. When we come to the words, faith of Jesus Christ, I had a Bible study for you a few weeks ago, where we looked at numbers, a number of examples of the genitive case phrases in the Bible. And you saw how difficult they could be. Because... A genitive case phrase, the love of God, or love of God, or the faith of God, chapter 3 and verse 4, or faith of Jesus Christ without the definite article, chapter 3 and verse 22, where we are right now, require context or comparison with other scriptures to know what they mean. The phrase itself does not tell you a thing, except that there's faith and there's Christ. The words, the love of God, do not tell you whether it's God's love of you or your love of God, just by the phrase itself. I first of all want to set that error to rest. There is no evidence in the phrase itself to know what is being described. You must go elsewhere, looking into its context, comparing Scripture with Scripture, and take a position on a genitive phrase. And I gave you a number that night, and I hope anyone that's listening to this We'll go and look for the genitive case phrases outlined so that you can make a review of that subject if you did not ha- have not seen or heard that yet. The grammar does not indicate what it should be. There has been a tendency on our part in the past to say the faith of Jesus Christ has to be Jesus Christ's personal faith. But the words themselves do not prove that. The love of God does not prove that it's God's love of us. The love of God has to be understood in its context, whether it's our love of God or His love of us. The faith of Jesus Christ, which is not the terminology here, but faith of Jesus Christ could be Jesus Christ's faith. It could be our faith in Jesus Christ, though that is not common for this construction. The phrase does not have the word the. 
So let's make sure we understand that. When we find in the Bible the phrases, the faith of Jesus Christ, sometimes it refers to the religion, the doctrine, or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like James chapter 2 and verse 1, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respective persons. Meaning, my brethren, don't you hold the religion or the gospel or the doctrine of Jesus Christ and have respective persons because the two don't go together. But we don't have that definite article here in Romans chapter 3 and verse 22. We have three options for this genitive phrase. The first option is, it's our faith in Jesus Christ and all Bible, all modern Bible versions take away any work on your part by telling you that the words are faith in Jesus Christ, not faith of Jesus Christ. So they take away the dilemma by putting it faith in Jesus Christ, our faith in Him. That is one way that we can understand this genitive phrase. The second way that we can understand it is the one I just mentioned. That it's the doctrine, the gospel, religion of Jesus Christ, like James 2.1 that I mentioned. But that usage typically requires the definite article, the, in front of faith. Now this, it's this simple. If I say to you, I have faith, what do you understand me to be saying? I have trust or confidence in something. But what if I say to you, I have the faith? I hold a body of doctrine or the gospel or the religion of some sort. We don't have that definite article here. So that is unlikely in this particular context, though it is very likely and necessary in other places. The third option is the faith of Jesus Christ is the way that you would read it initially. Like you will in chapter 4 when we have the words, the faith of Abraham. Do you believe that's your faith in Abraham? Or is that Abraham's faith? The faith of Abraham. It's Abraham's faith. So the third option is that this is the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ in trusting and confidence in God that led him his entire life to lay down his life to be the sacrifice for our sins. What position do we take on the three options that we have for this phrase, the faith of Jesus Christ. We choose the interpretation, and we have from the beginning, that this is Jesus Christ's faith and trust in God that led him throughout his whole life to lay his life down as a substitutionary sacrifice for us on the cross of Calvary. Remember, the grammar doesn't prove a thing. You can say the words, the faith of Jesus Christ, With any accents you want to on those syllables, it doesn't prove anything. If it proves anything, it proves it cannot be your faith in Jesus Christ because you can't find a place in Scripture where the Holy Spirit ever wrote about your faith in Jesus Christ where you can prove the point and use the words, faith of Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit wants to tell you about you believing in Jesus Christ and he uses the word faith, He says, faith in Jesus Christ, and he's got many of those. Like Jesus would say in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, have faith in God. Now, you don't have to work very hard to understand that. And so when we come to this one, we choose it being the personal faith of the Lord Jesus Christ toward God in coming and bearing our sins on the cross of Calvary. If we choose faith in Christ, 
like the modern Bible versions change the terminology, we end up with what's called a tautology, or we have faith or belief being mentioned twice. Once as the source, once as the object of the righteousness of God. Let me word it to you differently here in verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto those that have faith in Jesus Christ. Or the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all those that have faith of Jesus Christ. It ends up a redundancy that doesn't make as much sense as the source of the righteousness of God being by Jesus Christ's faith and the object being those that believe. I will say this, and I've heard this doctrine for the twenty, for about 30 years. I want to make this point. The predominant emphasis on faith in Romans 3 and Romans 4 is not Jesus Christ's faith. It's our faith. Because the whole emphasis is a different plan of salvation from the works of the law and our faith laying hold of Christ. Because when it moves to Abraham, it's not going to talk about Abraham being justified by God's faith in Abraham. It's not going to talk about Abraham being justified by Christ's faith in God. It's going to talk about Abraham being justified by his faith in God. That's the predominant emphasis of chapters 3 and 4. However, when we have this phrase, and we've got another phrase in verse 25, that we are going to, we are going to take a position on it based on its context and how it is, fits the rest of Scripture. So first of all, we have this one. If we choose faith in Christ, we end up making the verse somewhat redundant in the way that it states it. If we take the belief from the second half, then we would read it this way. Even the righteousness of God, which is by belief in Jesus Christ, unto all and upon the all them that believe. Why restate it twice unless there's a distinction that we can take here? If Paul intended our faith in Jesus, he knows how to write it. He wrote it in Galatians 3.26, Ephesians 1.15, Colossians 1.4, Colossians 2.5, as faith in Jesus Christ. We want to preserve the distinction between the source of the righteousness of God by faith of Jesus Christ and the object of the righteousness of God unto all and upon all them that believe. We want that distinction there. You say, but this is hard for me. To look at the words, faith of Jesus Christ, and see them as Jesus Christ's faith. It's hard to read Hebrews 4.12 after you've heard it all your life to be referring to the Bible and understand it to be referring to the Lord Jesus Christ and not the Bible. Let's not make things hard or easy. Let's try to be as fair as we can with the Word of God. And I'm trying to be that way in everything that I'm saying to you right now. We know, by comparing Scripture, that the righteousness of God does not come by our faith. It comes by the faithful obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. For by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. That is the righteousness of God. And you say, well, Romans 5.19 sounds good, but it doesn't have the word faith. Romans 5.19 assumes that maybe you have read the Bible before. Because there is no obedience without faith that would ever please God. And it is Jesus Christ's perfect faith and obedience in God that is the basis for our righteousness provided for by Him. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption 
There's the means of the righteousness of God. It's through the redemption of Christ Jesus. How did Jesus Christ redeem us? By faithfully obeying the God of heaven in sending him to die on the cross. I come to do thy will, O God, Jesus Christ said. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. And have given unto us the word of reconciliation. That God was in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 There's too many. I'm, I'm starting back at verse 18 and I only want verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When we go and look in scripture to find out where do we get the righteousness of God. It is by the Lord Jesus Christ and it is not by some synergistic combination of you and Jesus Christ. It is purely by him. And it is his faithful obedience. His faithful obedience to God is one of my favorite subjects in the Bible. And I'd like to share a few of those points with you. We choose this interpretation that I've just given in four places and four places only that I know of. Romans 3.22, Philippians 3.9, Galatians 2.16, and Galatians 3.22. There are other places where we take a position that the faith of Jesus Christ refers to the gospel doctrine or religion of Jesus. There may be one place, Ephesians 3.12, where faith of Him or faith in Him is understood as our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we read the Bible, our Lord's faith, His confidence and His trust in God is a certain and it is a great fact of the Gospel. For He had greater faith His entire life than Abraham or any other of the elders of Israel. So when we, we read the words, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. We see the object of the righteousness of God being believers, and that is the predominant emphasis of the second half of this chapter and all of chapter 4, but yet we also see the source of that righteousness being the Lord Jesus Christ. Since the grammar doesn't prove the point for us, we go elsewhere in the Bible. When we go elsewhere in the Bible, we find that the righteousness of God is by Jesus Christ's singular obedience for us, which was fully mixed with faith more than any man has ever had. So the question, did Jesus Christ have faith in God, has to be answered. He had more faith in God than anyone has ever had. And that was true his entire life. When the Bible says that we are justified by one man's obedience, that obedience was by faith in God his Father, which he practiced his entire life. The Bible says that he put his trust in God. Psalm 16, verse 1 And 16 verse 8. And Psalm 18 and verse 2. Instead of looking at the prophecies of his faith and trust in God, look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Where we can read it. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. I hope that you'll remember that definition. Was there anyone who looked ahead better than anyone else 
And for what he saw ahead, he did things here by trusting God. Now Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses was a good example of that in Hebrews chapter 11. But if you've ever read Hebrews chapter 11, then you need to read Hebrews chapter 12. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, there's an example of faith that trumps all and everyone in chapter 11. There's no one in chapter 11 with enough faith to be your example. All they are is witnesses of the race that you're running. But your example is to be someone else who has greater faith than anyone in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13. Quoting from the Old Testament, Paul writes, And again, I will put my trust in Him. This comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 22. I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. Right now, I want to show you a few cross-references of Scripture. We're comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Not just words, but also concepts. Did Jesus Christ have faith? And was Jesus Christ's faith in God part and parcel of us obtaining the righteousness of God? Yes and yes. More so than anyone. It's the only faith that you can depend on for salvation. Because your faith has a different role. It has the evidence of the righteousness put upon you by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 2.13, quotations from the Old Testament, Paul writes, I will put my trust in Him, and he is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not saying this about himself. He's quoting a prophecy about the Lord Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. And it goes on to make the comparison further by three more verses of Jesus Christ being superior to Moses. Now Moses was full of faith, because we have examples in Hebrews chapter 11 of his different acts of faith. But Jesus Christ was more faithful than Moses was by all the obedience that Jesus Christ showed to God. Moses was not crucified on the cross of Calvary with God forsaking him. And Jesus, in great faith, his final words were, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. An awesome act of faith. How about his act of faith in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It was his knowledge of God's will and his faithful purpose to keep that will that's the basis for our salvation. His obedience without faith would be meaningless because the Bible says without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Somebody will say, you're having to work awfully hard to show us the faith of Jesus Christ in our redemption. If you've ever studied the Bible, you have to work pretty hard to show that baptism is not necessary for salvation. And if you don't think so, I'll show you the verses. There's a lot of things that take work in the Bible. There's Proverbs that take a lot of work. There's parables that take a lot of work. Because the Lord wants it to involve a little bit of work and study so that we will apply ourselves. Look at chapter 5 of Hebrews. You know, Hebrews is a chapter after chapter 
description of the superiority of Jesus Christ to various aspects of the Old Testament. Hebrews 5, 7. Who in the days of his flesh, speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. See, here's a place where it says that Jesus Christ feared God. You can't fear God without faith in God, at least fear that is respected and acknowledged by God as being fear that he accepts. But the Lord Jesus Christ feared God. And that's what drove him to do what he did in verse 8. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Look at chapter 10, verse 7. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. That is faith. Pure and simple, faith. I come to do thy will, O God. You have given me something to do, and I'm coming to do it. And he repeats that again in verse 9. Now, I've just mentioned to you that faith with, you know, faith is what makes anything acceptable to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Jesus pleased God all the time. This is how we compare Scripture. If God would say of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, guess what that tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ? He was full of faith. He had great faith in everything that he did. Because everything that he did, he did toward the pleasure of God. That's what made it all acceptable in the sight of God. Now in Hebrews 11, this idea of looking ahead and seeing something and trusting God and thereby obeying God has a list of illustrious heroes. It starts with Abel and it ends with those that have no names in the hall of faith. It's a long list of those that by faith, by faith, by faith. Okay, Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12, where there is one example of faith that puts all those in the shade. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, all those mentioned in chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, if we just latch on to the words, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we tend to limit those words to, Jesus gave us our faith, and Jesus will perfect our faith. But it doesn't say our faith. It says He... It it doesn't say it that way because of what follows in the second clause. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The fact that Jesus initiates our faith and perfects our faith is not the cause for us to look to Him. The cause for us to look to Him is the example of His faith. Look at what it says next. Who? This is the explanation of how He's the author and finisher of our faith. What is our faith? It's the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the doctrine and gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he did to be the author and finisher of our religion or of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. This is the great example of faith. Did the Lord Jesus Christ have faith? He had so much faith that he is the author and the finisher of our faith by being the preeminent example of it. So when we come back to Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Do we make a choice that that's faith in Jesus Christ when we have no Bible examples of that terminology being used that way? When we compare Scripture, we find that our righteousness comes by Jesus Christ's faithful obedience, not by ours. It's unto us and upon us. We apprehend it, we claim it, we find assurance by our faith. But it's His faith that secured it for us. His enemies knew He trusted in God. They accused Him of that on the cross. In Isaiah 53 and verse 11, it says, Through His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Whose knowledge? Faith and knowledge go together. Because you've got to have knowledge in order to have faith. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ and his knowledge of the will of God and his perfect trust in it. If the phrase, faith of Jesus Christ, is taken any of the other two ways, it doesn't alter the passage. It just forces us to look at the second half of the verse in a slightly different way. It doesn't change a thing. If we make it faith in Jesus Christ... My faith in Jesus Christ is based on this fact, that Jesus Christ faithfully obeyed God's law for me, and that is the basis and source of the righteousness of God upon me. Even if I do that. If I say, faith of Jesus Christ is the religion or doctrine or gospel of Jesus Christ. Same thing. The doctrine, religion, or gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ faithfully obeyed God in order for my justification. How does our faith of believing relate to Jesus Christ's faith in God his Father? Back to Romans 3.22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Jesus Christ secured it by his faithful obedience. We lay hold of it and find assurance for our souls by the evidence of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the great divider in the human race. Only those that God has elected, justified, and regenerated will ever believe the gospel. Abraham was identified as being a righteous man by two steps. And they weren't leaving Ur of the Chaldeans. Though we would say he obviously was an obedient child of God leaving Ur of the Chaldeans. And he was. But that is not the event that the Lord God focused upon. The event the Lord focused upon was in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 when He promised him a numerous seed and Abraham believed the Lord and God said He counted it to him for righteousness. When we believe the record that God has given of His Son, Jesus Christ, it's counted to us. God declares us righteous. We've been righteous in the purpose and plan of Almighty God in the covenant that He made with Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world. But it's our faith that lays hold of that. And it's faith that is the evidence of a just man. Faith is the evidence of a born-again man. Faith is the evidence of a man 
that the righteousness of God is upon him. Abraham believed this promise. So shall thy seed be. We believe this promise. That whosoever believeth on the Son of God hath life. We believe the record that God has given of His Son Jesus Christ. Therefore we know that the righteousness of God is unto us and upon us. Is Romans 3 and verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. The wisdom, the point, the lesson in the second half of the verse is not in the words unto or upon. It's in the repetition of the word all. As the last clause helps you understand, for there is no difference. For all, Jews and Gentiles, are on the same level when it comes to condemnation, and Jews and Gentiles are on the same level when it comes to justification. That the righteousness of God, secured by Jesus Christ, is to believers of any sort. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that was the evidence that God's righteousness was upon you. There is no difference. And again, it's repeated in verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If we're true to Paul's intent in Romans, we are always going to be recognizing his driving home the point that there was no advantage to being a Jew. And that Gentiles, through Jesus Christ... And faith in him had as much evidence of being justified and saved as a Jew could ever have. So that's why we have verse 23 right there. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As Paul is making his point all the way so far in this third chapter, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile in condemnation. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile in justification. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile in how it's obtained. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile in how it's apprehended and we lay claim to it ourselves. By faith. By faith. Unto all and upon all them that believe. The faith here is clearly our faith because it says so. It says, unto all and upon all them, plural, that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned. He's speaking of sinful men, Jews and Gentiles, that God's righteousness is unto and upon them that believe. When you show me a man that believes the gospel, I will tell you that God has declared that man righteous. Abraham was declared righteous because he believed God's promise. And that example is given to us repeatedly. How did Phinehas have God's righteousness declared upon him? Phinehas, Psalm 106, verses 30 and 31. It was counted unto him for righteousness to all generations. How do we know that Phinehas was a righteous man? By his act of righteousness in defending the religion of God by running a javelin through a fornicating couple in a tent. Described in detail in Numbers chapter 25. But it tells us that that event. But now what would drive... If it was that event, what drove Phinehas... To go to the tent. He was, al- he was already a born again child of God. But it was that event that the Lord singled out in Phinehas' life to say, that is a righteous man. What about Rahab? When did God regenerate Rahab? The Bible doesn't tell us. But how do we know she was a righteous woman? Because she lied to the, the authorities of her city in order to protect the lives of the spies from Israel that were in her house. 
Where is she mentioned? She's in Hebrews chapter 11 as an example of faith, and she is in James chapter 2 as an example of faith and works, proving she was justified by works. When we read these words, Paul is not giving the Arminians one leg to stand on. Paul is pointing out the contrast against the works of the law and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Abraham believed this message, so shall thy seed be, and it was counted to him for righteousness. We hear this message, Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin, under crucified under Pontius Pilate 2,000 years ago, is the Son of God. Do you believe this? If you believe that, and you believe it in such a way, it changes your religious views, and it changes your life. That's the works that prove your faith is sincere. God's righteousness is upon you. It's unto you. God had elected you before the world began, justified you in Christ on the cross, and has regenerated you sometime before you would even make that confession. That is faith, and that is its relationship to justification. We're going to have a lot more opportunity to see this relationship. But when we read in 322... Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, Paul is not giving the Arminians anything. He is refuting those that thought in in Rome and that came out of Jerusalem that the righteousness of God was obtained by some combination of law works and not simply by believing the promise of God. When we believe the gospel and the promise of God that's contained in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the evidence that we're elect, evidence that we're justified, evidence that we're born again. When Abraham believed God, so shall thy seed be, evidence, elect, evidence, justified, evidence, born again, or he wouldn't have done any of those three things. Is this issue important to us? Absolutely important. This is how we want to stand before God in the great day of judgment. How do we know that the righteousness of God is unto us and upon us? By believing the gospel. How do we know in the great day of judgment that our names will be found in the book of life? By believing the gospel. How do we answer this question? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I've preached that passage before. When Paul and Silas said to the jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, were they telling the jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be born again? Not a chance. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be born again, then what is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? Your new man or your old man, your flesh or your spirit? Your flesh and the old man does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there a salvation yet to come for everyone that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there a future tense salvation? Other than our practical salvation from all the lies in the world? Absolutely. Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be confounded. Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. The evidence of that future declaration to the universe of the righteousness of God upon us is by the evidence of faith And a whole lot more. And a whole lot more. Why is the whole lot more not mentioned in Romans? 
Because for Paul to mention a whole lot more right here in Romans 3 and 4, he would give the Jewish legalists too much rope. So it's faith versus works of the law. Faith versus works of the law. Over and over again in Romans chapter 3 and 4. As soon as Paul is free of Jewish legalists, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he goes right after faith and the work of faith. And faith that worketh by love, as he says in Galatians. Paul understands that faith by itself is nothing. But here, it's a system of faith. Faith is what God requires because it's what God required of Abraham. And he will use this argument repeatedly before we can get out of chapter 4. Because Paul will take the Jewish legalists and point out to them, you believe that Abraham is your father. Did Abraham have God's righteousness declared to him based on Moses' law? No, he was 400 years before Moses. Based on circumcision? No, he was circumcised in Genesis 17. But in Genesis 15, God declared him righteous. Then what did Abraham do to show that he was righteous? He believed what God said to him. And he he staggered not in unbelief, but was strong in faith giving glory to God. The predominant message that we have from right here, Romans 3.21 to 4.25, is faith on our part in Jesus Christ is the evidence of God's justifying grace upon us and that the righteousness of God clothes us. Because there is no man that will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that He is the Son of God and the only hope for sinners without God having done a work of grace in his life. And if God has done a work of grace in his life by opening his heart, long before that, 2,000 years ago for you and me, Jesus Christ made my legal justification complete on the cross of Calvary. And thousands of years before that, in eternity past, God had already purposed to save me in his electing grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith is what the New Testament asks of us for the assurance of our own souls. What does it say in Second Peter chapter 1? How do you make your calling and election sure? By adding to your faith, virtue, knowledge, godliness, patience, temperance, brotherly kindness, charity. There are eight things mentioned there. It's not by faith only. Faith gets it started, and faith is fulfilled by the works that follow. In Genesis 15, we read, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. James says, "Uh uh-uh. That scripture in Genesis 15, 6 wasn't fulfilled, or it really wasn't shown to be true until chapter 22. When God said, take your son Isaac and offer him for a burnt sacrifice. It was then that a voice came out from heaven and said, Abram, Abraham, now I know that thou fearest me. 22 fulfilled 15. 15 was long after. Abraham had already been obeying God. God singled out an event of faith in Abraham's life to give us an example. What is the... What is the initial belief that God requires of us? To hear the message 
that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, and we believe that record. The eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. The eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Philip baptized the eunuch. That is the watershed event in our lives that show the work of God upon us. They shall all be taught of God, and that is what makes us believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the righteousness of God upon you, secured by Jesus Christ's obedience, but we lay hold of it by faith. You say, why is Romans 3 and 4 so difficult? A couple of reasons. One, there is a temptation on the way that we have been taught for many, many years. There's a temptation. I didn't say we are guilty of it, but there's a temptation for us to err too far in moving away from our faith in Jesus Christ because we're afraid of being Arminians. The second reason is, you're forgetting that Paul has a very specific and definite opponent in Romans 3 and 4, and it's Jewish legalists. So he is constantly faith versus works in the law. Faith versus works in the law. He is not teaching that regeneration comes by faith, that justification comes by faith in any legal sense. The justification that comes by faith is in the practical sense of the assurance of us making our calling, our election, and our justification sure by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word, and more than anything else, may He by His Spirit cause us to believe the record that He has given of His Son. These things are written that ye might believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye might know that ye have eternal life, and that ye might believe on the name of the Son of God. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.